You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, uh, the ball game yesterday was incredible and nerve-wracking, and uh, I-, I sent out several texts because I thought it was a done deal uh, to several of you that are in the room, and I kept saying, like I sent follow-up texts saying, I wish I hadn't sent that just yet. Uh, because the end of that game got tight. Uh, but it was oh, so good, so good to see that happening. Uh, and today, I'm, I'm so glad to be here uh, with you to share kind of a, a difficult uh, topic on behalf of uh, what happens in Philippians. Um, today is really centered about uh, what do you do when you've embraced or you find yourself a part of a culture, uh, a culture of conflict. Meaning, it's not just conflict. Everybody deals with conflict. But, but a culture of conflict. And to get it, get, to get it started, um, there's a book that um, I have uh, spent a little bit of time looking at. Uh, it's called uh, The Boys in the Boat. It's a best time, New York Times bestseller. Um, I, by the way, love how when a book title has this, Nine Americans in Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, okay, I didn't need to read it, all right? Uh, they, they put basically everything right there. But it's about a group of guys um, that that row at the University of Washington. They compete in the 1937-36 Olympics in Germany. And it's not just about them making the Olympic team, it's about them even making uh, the college team because the college team there in Washington um, didn't know a lot about rowing. They had to go against the odds of of Ivy League school teams on the East Coast. Uh, But what the book is about is it highlights these guys on this team and how they're their families, like, like their dads are lumberjacks, um, miners, farmers. And so these guys don't know much about rowing. Uh, the real question, you know, about the book is what, what's it going to take for these guys to make it? And when it comes to Olympics and it comes to rowing, you know, like even if you don't know much about it, you think through things that it's going to require, um, normal stuff like athleticism, endurance, stamina, teamwork, talent. I don't know if you guys know this, in 1995, I was voted most talented at uh, the high school that I graduated from. Uh, I throw that in every once in a while as a stupid joke. Um, I could not make this team, I can assure you. But endurance, stamina, teamwork, talent, they, could have to, they would have to learn to go in sync together, right? But the book decides to step all that stuff to the side and focus in on something that is vitally important when it comes to this team making it. And the theme is humility. Um, There's a a great quote in the book. Listen to this. The challenges they faced together taught them humility. The need to set aside their individual egos for the sake of the boat as a whole. And humility was the common gateway through which they were able to now come together and begin to do what they hadn't been able to do before. I mean, so the book's about world-class athletes that are aggressively willing to say, this is not about me, this is about us. This is about a team. Now, this is what you're going to hear today when we, we examine some of the, the, the verses that Paul teaches at the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. It's the idea that I have, a, I have to aggressively set aside the concept that it's not about me. It's, it's about a team. So this message is practical for a marriage. It's practical for a family, for a company. Not just how a company works with itself, but how a company works with other companies. It's, it's practical for a team, and it's definitely practical for a church because the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church, a church that is adopted on accident 
a culture affiliated with conflict. Paul even makes this big statement. He says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. I want you to strive together as one, meaning um, take your egos and, and put them to the side and start working together. And here's why. The Philippian church is in a crisis. Like when we come to this section of the scripture, you're going to find out uh, Paul drops hints that they're just not getting along. Uh, let me read a few of the hints just randomly. Watch what I mean. Paul says to him, hey, guys, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Like, like when it comes to the way you guys operate on Sundays or midweeks or whatever in the group life, even outside the group life, don't be selfish. All right, here's another one. Do everything without arguing and complaining. He said, I've, I've read in this prison, I've been told in this prison that, that, that arguing and complaining has just started to spur up at different places. Just do what you can as followers of Christ to not do that. And then by the end of the letter, like chapter 4, Paul, he doesn't hold back. He even mentions two names. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be on the same mind in the Lord. In other words, he's begging these two ladies to get along, and he writes it to the rest of the group. Like, apparently these ladies love God, and they like Paul. They just don't like each other. And so Paul is writing this, this section of the letters to a church that's in crisis. They are rapidly embracing a culture of conflict. Now, I said earlier that this is important for us in this room because all marriages, all families, all teams, all companies, all businesses— all churches will have conflict. Like people, like it, wherever people are at, there's going to be conflict. But the problem is there is a difference between occasional conflict and a culture of conflict. I go back to the book that I recommended earlier. Imagine that team is moving in one direction, but there's only two guys on that team that are constantly arguing and not getting along. I can assure you that that team from Washington is not going to do well in the race. They won't even compete well if two are fighting. It causes the whole to be held up. And Paul is writing this. He's like, look, to the church at Philippi, I'm concerned that the conflict, like, like the, the culture of conflict that's growing inside of your church, he said, it's in danger of keeping the message of Jesus from moving forward. And one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter is to bring guidance to the lost art of getting along. Today, if I could just play through this like you would, because I've done this myself. As you sit and hear this today, as you sit and read this, um, perhaps some of you are sitting here thinking about your marriage. Your marriage has a culture of conflict. It's not just conflict, it's a culture of it. Like you move from one argument that's ending to another one that's beginning. And what we read, what we study today has has potential to change everything, but it's not just the message, it's you applying the message. Um, perhaps it's not just a marriage or a relationship. Let's say it's a, a family. Like um, there are blended families in this room and sometimes things get complicated. Um, you know, in a family, kids reach different ages and adults get more stubborn and things get more and more complicated. You don't know how to navigate different things. Over time, it's not just conflict that's at the family. Potentially, you get home, it feels like it's just a culture of conflict. It's pervasive. Or even at work. Like work is all about getting ahead. And right now, conflict is everywhere at your work because in order for you to get ahead, you've got to pull somebody else down or someone else has pulled you down to get ahead. And it feels like conflict is everywhere. Well, what we're going to read today, for a follower of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is writing this. He says it applies to 
marriages, it applies to relationships, it applies to families, it applies to work and team, and it definitely applies to a church, because he's writing it to a church. And what he's going to tell us, there's nothing new, okay? Let me go ahead and burst your bubble. There is nothing new, but what he's going to tell us, there is there are a series of things that we forget. And when we forget these things, we all drift. Meaning, when you and I find ourselves in a culture that's dominated by conflict, we all drift toward forgetting a few different items. So number one, Paul says this. I'm going to tell you the first thing that we forget. As husbands and wives, as families, at work, at a church, we forget what's at stake. Listen to what he says, verse 27. Paul says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus, that Christ died for our sins and he was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. He says, when it comes to the way you interact with the people around you that you love the most, make sure the words about Jesus matches the life of Jesus. He's pleading for their behavior to match their belief. The problem was the gospel message was not on display in relationships for the same reason. Meaning what's at stake was completely different based on other people and their dynamic of how they were trying to get along. Like for me and you, let's just expose a few things that what we think are at stake on whether or not we get along. How about this? Number one, couples tired of fighting. That's what's at stake. Like we think what's at stake, I'm just tired of fighting. I would love for us just to go home, to chill, to say some nice things, to watch a show together. It's peaceful. That's what we think is at stake. Also, how about families? Like families, if we're going to spend money, what's at stake is I just want us to have a good vacation. Like we come back and, and, and it was worth it. That's what's at stake. Or perhaps for a company. What's at stake on a culture where there's an absence of conflict? We're going to get more done. A team will win. They'll work well together. A church, ministry can actually be fun. This is what we think is at stake. And Paul's like, no, you're going down. See, these aren't any of the reasons the Apostle Paul gives. The reason that Paul gives, Paul wants them to get along in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what's actually at stake. Otherwise, it makes the good news look like bad news. Because the way we're acting is ridiculous. And it makes the good news of Jesus look irrelevant. He's like, look, you can, you can set the bar down here and just say, man, I just want us to get along. I just want life to be fun. Or he said, or you can set the bar right here. Because if you've embraced the culture of conflict, what you forgot is what's really at stake. And what's really at stake is the good news of Jesus. People are watching how you interact. Your family's watching how you interact. And what you're doing, how you're playing out, it's either repulsive or it's attractive. Verse 27, Paul says, Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul knows if they don't learn the art of getting along, it's game over for that local church. And in the same sense, if you and I have embraced a culture of conflict, not just periodic conflict, but a culture of conflict, he knows it's potentially game over for a marriage, game over for a family, game over at a company. Understand that, that all of us in this room there are things that we think are at stake 
our sanity, our joy. But Paul says, I want you to remember there's something more at stake. And that is how people view the gospel of Jesus. In other words, Paul says, look, it's just easy to forget what's at stake. So number one, don't forget what's at stake. Well, uh, the church of Philippi could begin to write to Paul and say, Paul, hey, Philippi is going through some tough times. Um, the Roman military, it's kind of climbing here. Our economy's getting down. We're getting persecuted. We're getting picked on. Pressure's high. Paul says, okay, number two, I don't want you to forget what to expect. In other words, Paul lets them know and lets you and I know no one said it would be easy. Pressure is part of us learning to relate with other people that we love. It comes with the territory. Instead of being surprised when pressure shows up, it's more like Paul says you ought to be surprised when pressure isn't there. Listen to what he says, verse 29. Paul says, it's been granted to you on behalf of Jesus, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. In other words, I don't want you guys to forget what to expect. Suffering is normal. Struggle is normal. Stress in relationships is normal. And pressure is normal. And then Paul uses that fancy word in the verse called granted. The word granted means gifted. And according to this verse that Paul has just shared, we've been given two gifts, a belief in Jesus, which we're excited about, and suffering with Jesus. In other words, he says, don't, don't forget what to expect. Suffering in relationships is part of the ter territory. And I'm reminded of this almost every week where I pick up a phone, either send a text or make a phone call to one of the guys in my group, and I reach out in need of prayer because something difficult is going on. Perhaps it's in a relationship. Perhaps it's work-related. I act surprised when it's a struggle. I act surprised when there's pressure. Paul says, don't be surprised. Tim, you don't need to forget. It's suffering should be expected to the point Paul kind of gets on my nerves. One day when I see him in heaven, I cannot wait to have this conversation with him. Like he's so mature, so much more mature than I am. Look at what he includes as one of his life goals. Philippians 3.10. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I think Paul's like, guys, when it comes to difficulties in relationships, just expect it. Okay, so Paul's letting us know, okay, I don't want you to forget what's at stake. I don't want you to forget what's, what's to expect. To which you want to say, all right, Paul, what do, we, what do we do? Can you tell us what to do? And before he tells us what he should do, what we should do, he reminds us what we have. And he goes into this lengthy detail on what we have. Don't forget what we have. And each of these that he talks about is a gift because of our relationship with Jesus. So right now, given the conflict that's going on wherever you're at, and you're not sure what to do about it, he says, don't forget what you have. Verse 1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Jesus, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... 
In other words, if you notice, before he tells them how to behave, he tells them, he reminds them that they belong. Like because of your relationship with Jesus, all these beautiful things like encouragement, comfort, sharing in the spirit, tenderness, compassion, it's been gifted to you. Then he says this, verse 2, then make my joy, to com- my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mine. Unfortunately, too many Christians navigate in relationships as if we're starving. We're starving for attention. We're starving for affection. And we're starving for affirmation. All three of which Paul is saying, I want you to remember what you have. It's a gift. And yet the source of so much conflict is me needing more attention, me desiring more affection, me needing words of affirmation to build me up. And Paul says, if you operate that way, there is going to be a cycle where there is constantly this struggle, this this culture of conflict. He says, I don't want you to forget what you have. So he says, don't forget what's at stake. That's the message of Jesus Christ. Don't forget what to expect, meaning nobody said it would be easy. Then he says, I don't want you to forget what you have, meaning God gifted you those things that you are so desperate and you're, you're searching for in other people. He gave it to you in Jesus. And then he finally says, I don't want you to forget what's most important. And when he goes into this one, this one gets tough. Because I want you to think about the conflict that is going on right now that it feels like it's pervasive and it's not disappearing. Paul's going to say, there, there's something that needs to move out and there's something that needs to move in. First, let's look at what needs to move out. Verse number three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Like I know so far, you're looking out for you a whole lot, and I'm looking out for me a whole lot. And Paul says, as we follow Jesus, and he's going to build on this next week even more, but as we follow Jesus, there's something that's got to move out, and it's me. Like the drive for me, in a real sense, pride has to move out. And here's what needs to move in. It's what was talked about in the book at the beginning, humility. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but here we go. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. You know, what you'll notice in life is good movement pushes out bad movement. And bad movement pushes out good movement. And when he talks about humility and pride, one is going to nudge out the other. These two do not like being in the room at the same time. They're not friends. They don't work well together. That's why Jesus refers to it as the exchange life. Us getting rid of our old way of living and adopting Embracing the Jesus way of living, which means you have to move pride out. I'm going to tell you about me and pride. Pride makes it impossible for me to ask for help. Pride makes it impossible for me to apologize. Pride makes it impossible for me to own my part of something that I've done wrong because I always want to prove it was stacked in their direction. Pride makes it hard for me to forgive especially when no one says they're sorry. And pride makes it hard for me to listen. Just ask my family. Paul says, look, there are things that 
we all have a tendency of forgetting, but let's not forget what's most important. You've got to kick pride out and bring humility in. If there's one thing that I would encourage all of us to embrace this week, it's these three numbers. Two, three, four. Super simple. Two, three, four. Meaning when it comes to conducting ourselves at home, at work, in a classroom, in a difficult setting, when it comes to conducting ourselves in a way that we are embracing the follower, uh, embracing the attitude of Jesus Christ, we do it so that Philippians 2, 3, and 4, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This week, you could add it as a screensaver on your phone and put it on the dash in your car, put it in the mirror in the bathroom, or like me, carry that around in your pocket. Let me tell you how it plays out in a real way, just practically on behalf of marriage. Here's how this premise of pride and humility plays out. It's been referred to as a crazy cycle. God has wired men and women different. We all know that. Like women lean more in the direction of words of affection, men more in the, wor- in the realm of words of affirmation. You'll see this. When a woman wants love and a man wants respect, that's ultimately what goes on in a marriage. Uh, words of love for her, words of respect or affirmation are even better. So affection and affirmation. Here's the crazy cycle. When, when pride won't leave the room, here's the crazy cycle. If you're not loving me, I'm not respecting you. And if you're not respecting me, I'm not loving you. That's a crazy cycle because guess what happens? It just does the same thing every day. Conflict's one thing. This is a culture of conflict. Like if you're not doing this, then I'm not doing Pride is all over that. But when humility steps into the picture, here's how it looks. A man expresses love even when he doesn't feel respected. And a woman expresses respect even when she doesn't feel loved. It's love and respect regardless of the outcome. And Paul says that's what it looks like if you want to destroy a culture of conflict. Um, I've said this um, to some friends lately in some special moments, Um, but I want to say it to all of us today, (sighs) husbands and wives especially, and I think this could even spill to the family. For the most part, like I said earlier, um, men long for those words of affirmation, and women long for words of affection. It's part of our wiring. One of the things that that I think you probably do, we could all do better, but but you probably do on a consistent basis if your husband and wife are in the family, you say those three words a lot. I love you. I love you. Usually we say it in the morning when they're headed out the door. Uh, We say it at the end of a phone conversation. Uh, We say it at night before we go to bed. It's just those last words that we want to say. But it becomes so easy. Wouldn't you agree to say that? Like the, the longer we're in life together. Um, if, if you want to do it the way that Jesus would have it done, in a way that, that is a beautiful picture of Philippians 2, 3, and 4, 
Instead of saying, I love you, you just add one word and finish the sentence. Uh, Men to the women, I love you because. That's the one word. And try to use words of affection. Like, I love you because you are my best friend. I know I've not acted like it. I, I love you because you make time to listen. I love you because you, you genuinely care for us. You see, it causes you to slow down. It causes you to set aside pride. It, it sounds so humble just to say I love you. No, humility adds the word because and finishes it with a reason that speaks to her soul. And then ladies, look into his eyes. Tell him I love him. I love you because. And add words of affirmation. Words of respect that just build him up. I promise you, he's longing for it. Like I love it when you, I love it because you take us to church. I love it when you leave your phone in the other room. I love it when we go out on dates together. I love the fact that you work so hard for this family. I love the fact when you pray. What Paul is doing is in this beautiful passage of Scripture, he's saying, look, conflict is inevitable. But a culture of conflict is so dangerous because it is the exact opposite of what the church should be known for. So Paul tells them at that church, And in so doing, he's telling us, let's not forget what's at stake. It's not just peace at home. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. People are watching. And let's not forget what to expect. Like, who said it's going to be easy? Be surprised when it's easy. It's hard. And let's not forget what we have. The three things that we crave, attention, affection, admiration are a gift from God. And he's gifted, he has gifted them to us already. So we, we operate in the overflow of it. And then let's not forget what's most important. Something's got to move out. Pride. And something's got to move in. Humility. I would encourage you this week to hold tight. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And if you're in a marriage, in a family, I'd highly encourage you to add that simple word, I love you, because, and finish the sentence. Father, thank you for today, and I thank you for... um, Paul just getting practical on something that is so pervasive here. We can look row to row and see families that are going through tough times, marriages that are missing the mark, the feeling of going from one argument to another to another. God, it's not just conflict, it's a culture of conflict. And as you've taught us through this word today, Father, the the most pressing need is humility. God, I love how Paul continues the conversation, the rest of Philippians 2, and tells us to embrace the humility of Jesus. 
God, that you were willing to set aside your rights, your riches, and your reputation because of a love for the Father and a love for us. God, if we're candid, I think those are three things every person in this room holds really tight. Our rights, our riches, and our reputation. Father, I pray that today you would bring an awareness of things that we need to forget. God, there are things that that have piled up so far for so many years that we're carrying with us. I pray that we would forgive and forget those things and put it behind us. And Jesus, don't let us forget what's at stake. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't let us forget that it is hard. Don't let us forget that we belong to you and you've gifted us. And don't let us forget what's most important, that we would embrace a life of humility. I pray for anyone today, God, that's in need of conversations or prayer or just someone to listen, that you give them the courage to talk. Father, I pray that you would do a work in the marriages in this room and the families in this room and the teams and companies represented in this room, that we would reflect you in all ways. And I pray this today in Jesus' name.